Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. As always, we want to give a special shout out to our season two sponsor, Accurix. That's A-C-C-U-R-I-C-S. Accurix is a infrastructure as code security company, which helps codify security for your cloud native infrastructure by codifying security throughout the development lifecycle. They also manage the popular open source IAC project, TerraScan. Visit them at Accurix.com for more. Thank you for joining us in the Resilient Cyber Podcast. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson. Hey, everybody. And today we're joined by Donald Fisher from Tidelift. Donald, thank you for being here. Uh, super glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Chris. Yeah, definitely. So for folks that don't know you or Tidelift, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself and the organization? Absolutely. So my name is Donald Fisher. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Tidelift. And we're a uh, private company. We're focused on helping organizations manage the open source software that flows into their applications that their software development teams are building. And we do that in a really creative and novel way through a combination of both software and people. And the people part of our solution is we have a way of working directly with the independent so-called upstream open source maintainers, who are the original creators and maintainers of uh, the open source software that so many of us depend on so much in the applications that we build. We have this business model that brings those open source creators into the economics of ensuring that those packages meet kind of enterprise readiness uh, standards. Yeah, that's awesome. It's I know Chris is going to be like, uh-huh, but I'm, I always love when people talk about the people and the technology and blending the two together because that's really, you know, we are consumers and developers of that technology. So I love that. I'm curious based on sort of what you guys are doing and what you're looking at. We were talking a little bit about this beforehand, but as far as like vulnerability management goes, you know, like having an asset inventory, understanding sort of where what you have first uh, is one of those sort of essential components to building a vulnerability management program around that. So I was curious how you felt about that sort of in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, first order of business is understanding what software you have and what's flowing into your applications. You know, we focus again on the not on the open source uh, kind of base level system components like Linux or Kubernetes. We focus on the stuff that actually flows into your applications themselves, the things in the you know container that gets deployed, things like uh, UI frameworks or libraries, etc. And you know, so part of the solution that is required here to get your arms around this is the software part, where you instrument your software release process. Yeah, keep track of what the what open source components are flowing into your application builds. Keep track of that in the format of a uh, you know software bill of materials uh, these days or uh, ingredients list of what's flowed into your applications. But then also to make that actionable, we really believe that you need to have this human element as well, because what you're really trying to do is understand what is the nature of that software that's flowing into your applications, what is the security posture of it. Also, things beyond security, the licensing posture of that um, software and open source licensing licensing can be an arbitrarily complicated area as well. And, you know, our belief is that the best way to get useful information, clean data to run a policy engine or analysis to understand what's flowing into your applications is to go to the source of that software, to the independent open source creators 
who are behind most of those application level frameworks and libraries and packages and ask them and create an incentive for them to partner up to provide first party information about you know what are the security practices that are being followed what are the license what's the licensing look like is that software being actively maintained so it's not just i guess at the end of the day just having a software bill of materials is not enough to address the whole problem it would be my uh, belief here you also need to have valid information about what are, what is the nature of those open source packages that are in your software bill of materials list yeah, definitely. You actually touched on this quite a bit in your response to Nikki, but I was curious if you had to say, you know, what are some of the, just maybe a, a couple of the the major problems when we look at the state of the open source uh, software ecosystem at the moment, what do you think like, you know, a couple of the biggest problems are right now that, that organizations or even the industry as a whole is struggling with? Well, you know, there was recently this very high profile open source born vulnerability that a lot of folks got a lot of folks attention. This lo- security uh, media, I guess, uh, has dubbed it log for shell but this was a vulnerability in the Apache log4j package that broke in uh, in December and I think that sort of demonstrates a lot of the key issues in open source ecosystems where you know Apache log4j an incredible uh, open source package rock solid at least 20 years of history so widely deployed in every enterprise java application a really really solid open source project by any standards. Unfortunately, you know, 20 years plus into its journey, had this uh, unfortunate issue, uh, remotely exploitable, you know, code execution vulnerability. And it's because the software was so good and so reliable all these years, and we all became to depend on it, but kind of take it for granted, that the exposure that resulted from this zero-day vulnerability was so broad, right? And I think that really gets to the core issue here is that we all rely on packages like Apache Log4j, but also thousands of other ones. And there's an asymmetric risk profile to these things where just one bad day for a great package or one package that you didn't vet you know, enough can bring down the entire estate if it's you know, a bad enough exploit. And so I think the industry, all participants in the industry, private companies, public sector, need to acknowledge that this is the reality, that we're, we depend on these open source packages and come up with better ways to go proactively, constructively partner with the folks who are making that software to ensure that it does meet these you know, security licensing maintenance standards that we need, we need it to in order to depend on them. Yeah, it's interesting because this is, it's one of those conversations I feel like we're having more and more, especially in the last couple of years, it's getting so much more visibility even though, as you mentioned, this is something that's been, you know, people have been using these these libraries and these tools for so long, but now it's sort of coming into the public eye. So uh, why do you think there's so much more increased attention uh, specifically on the software supply chain? Yeah, well, I mean, from, from my uh, vantage point, the conversation really shifted around software supply chain in general, really around the SolarWinds breach a year plus ago. That really seems to have, you know, shaken the world fairly fundamentally with good reason. In that case, that's a sort of broader category of all software supply chain. You know, that was a commercial vendor product, of course. But I think it got organizations thinking about, you know, that the broader issue. And it led to some specific actions in response to the severity of that issue. So, for example, the uh, White House Cybersecurity Executive Order of May 2021 
It's really catalyzed by solar winds, you know, required federal agencies to take a number of specific actions and develop plans and preventative measures to avoid software supply chain issues like solar winds going forward. But I, I would also give the um, federal government, U.S. federal government response there credit for anticipating some issues that would be coming in other aspects of the software supply chain, specifically around open source software. So the, the May 2021 executive order, it specifically called out open source software as an essential part of the software supply chain. It required organizations doing business with federal agencies to undertake um, providing software bills of material for their for their technology. And it required you know, representations that that software meets certain you know, security practices, et cetera. That was you know, months before this log for shell vulnerability that we were talking about broke. And so in a sense, it could be anticipated, it was anticipated that this risk, risk area existed. Unfortunately, most organizations at the end of the day didn't have the right tools and processes in place to fully defend against that yet. Is definitely now with log for shell on top of uh, solar winds. I think it's really become a top priority for many organizations in both public and private sector. Yeah, I love the way you laid that out. I think it's been kind of like a storm brewing in, in a sense that like, you know, adversaries have realized that they can, you know, compromise this, the supply chain, right? And then it have a cascading impact across many organizations you know, through one, you know, pathway. So it's way more efficient and uh, gives them broader reach. And, you know, at the same time, organizations are increasingly realizing like just how vulnerable they are in terms of the software they use. And then even more broadly, uh, the suppliers, you know, you talk about supply chain risk management broad, broadly uh, beyond just software, you know, MSP, CSPs, all that kind of stuff. Uh, comes into play as well. Another thing I wanted to ask you too is like when it comes to open source software maintainers and contributors, you know, typically it's done voluntarily or you know, uncompensated in many cases. Uh, how's Tidelift looking to change that paradigm? You kind of touched on this a bit earlier, so I'd love to elaborate on that. Yeah, so it, you know, the the social dynamics of open source communities vary and they're a little bit different at different levels of the stack, you know, at the base layer sort of like Linux operating system, Kubernetes things like that, you find a lot of uh, projects that these days are, are fairly vendor dominated, you know, they're full-time paid employees that are contributing a lot of the code and maintenance that goes into those parts of the software stack. But at the application development library tier, the dynamics are very different. The vast majority of packages like Log4j or UI frameworks or other building blocks of applications don't come from folks where they're paid for that to be their full-time day job. It's typically folks doing that related to their day job, sometimes explicitly a you know nights and weekends kind of activity. And that's actually great because it means it's a really diverse uh, you know foundation. there's it's sort of an open ecosystem. But the challenge is that when it's side pursuit that's done for impact and community and all these good reasons like that, it means that those folks don't necessarily have the time or the incentive to go make sure that that software meets all of these, you know, software readiness, enterprise readiness checklist items around security, around license clarity, around forward maintenance. And so the idea that we've been pursuing at Tidelift is, hey, we know who those folks are. Uh, we know that they're creating this software. Can we create an incentive for them to go? help us vet that their packages and surrounding packages in these open source ecosystems do meet these explicit, you know, objective uh, standards criteria. And sort of the starting point here was we said, hey, what if we took the 
list of assurances that, you know, an engineer at Red Hat, for example, who's maintaining a particular component of the operating system, thinks that they're responsible and paid to ensure that software meets uh, certain standards. Could we take that list of checklist items and go to these open source maintainers, offer to pay them, you know, real currency, US dollars to do this extra work above and beyond just creating the software to make sure that it meets these standards on an ongoing basis. And it's it's kind of tedious work. This is like the uh, release engineering aspects of quality assurance, security assurance around open source packages. But you know, the, the idea here is that if we create an economic incentive in addition to valuing the work that these folks are doing, they can create additional time in their lives to help us ensure that it meets these enterprise standards. And that's really essential for all of the organizations that already have come to depend on the software that these folks are creating. This just makes a you know better outcome for everyone. Yeah, I, I love the idea of an incentive. I mean, it's something that we've seen be really successful in the industry with vulnerability disclosure pro- programs, with bug bounties, things like that. It encourages people to sort of come forward and say, hey, I found this thing. And also, we're going to pay you because, you know, thanks for finding this for us. So I, so I love the idea of doing that. I'm curious, based on this sort of this idea of, of providing more incentives, do you think there's other resources or training or things like that that we can give these developers to help encourage them to, to think security first? Oh, absolutely. It's not just about dollars, although dollars are important, right? Like it's a great you know place to start is to say, hey, I am deriving economic benefit from your uh, project and I would like it to meet these additional standards. I would, I will, as a consumer of this software, I'm happy to pay for you to help assure that just like I'm happy to go to a vendor for Linux or um, a cloud runtime or something like that. But money is not everything. It doesn't cover everything that these folks need. And I, I think a really good way to ground that conversation is to think about what was it like to be part of the Apache Log4j maintainer team when the Log4Shell vulnerability broke? In that moment, they didn't, that team didn't need money on December 9th, December 10th, 2021. They needed backup, right? They're, the whole internet is, uh, as Wired Magazine said, the internet is on fire. You know, the world is basically turning and staring at this team saying, hey, when's the fix going to be available? Uh, how did this happen, et cetera? So what those open source maintainers need in a moment like that is they need help. They need a heat shield to help deflect some of that, you know, energy that's coming coming their way. And so, you know, that's one of the areas where we've been experimenting as well at, at Tidelift and, and more than experiment, putting into production is providing those open source maintainers like the Apache Log4j team with security response help. You know, many of these open source maintainers don't have a lot of experience around their single project filing CVE, you know, identifiers in the national vulnerability database and things like that. So that's an area where we can help. We can specialize in that. And we do have at Tidelift on, on our team. A security response, you know, folks who do that all day long, every day, and can step in and uh, help uh, these open source maintainers, you know, respond to these issues. And if you think about it, very frequently, open source maintainers have advanced knowledge around security issues in their open source projects because they'll get they'll get a report in a public GitHub issue or a private channel communication that says, "Hey, I think I found a I found something here. I wanted to give you a heads up about it." What do maintainers do in that moment? It's actually a really scary situation to be in if you know that your open source project that you put out there is used by 
governments, banks, big corporations. Now, all of a sudden, you're in a kind of a scary position. So what we try to do is lighten that load by having an established process that these open source maintainers can follow to say, hey, I think I have an issue. Can you help me go through the responsible disclosure process here, handle this in the best possible way? Otherwise, the natural thing to do is to kind of freeze up and uh, not deal with it. And that leads to, you know, a uh, free fall situation like we saw with uh, with Apache Log4j, a zero day unhandled vulnerability. Yeah, I think you're really diving into like just the complexity of as of the of the challenge as well, you know, across the entire ecosystem, both for contributors and, and maintainers and organizations. So one thing I wanted to ask you is like, you know, there are some folks I've heard say like, uh, you know, it's almost too complex of an issue, right? Uh, we, we, you know, it's just it's too much of an issue to even try to get our hands around because you know people have said well, organizations have already struggled to do like basic software uh, asset inventory, for example, right? So any recommendations, you know, for organizations that are starting to try to get a handle around their software supply chain, you know, best practices or uh, just, you know, a, a way to get going that doesn't seem quite so daunting, for example? Yeah, I mean, I've heard that too. I, I think it's um, it's not that complicated if you just kind of zoom out and think about how have patterns that we've applied in other aspects of IT and uh, the software industry, how do those apply to this to this space? You know, there is a well-trod path of organizations that rely on software having a upstream provider, vendor, that is ensuring that their software meets certain standards. It was true before open source around proprietary software. You know, you wouldn't just buy software, you'd buy maintenance and support and, uh, you know, security updates and so on. So I think we just need to slightly extend that model to recognize the fact that now in the modern era, a lot of that software that goes into our applications, typically we see 70% or more of the software that makes up custom applications is coming from these independent creators. So we just need to figure out how can we align things so that we can ask them to do the things that a commercial organization might have traditionally done and also reward them for doing that you know, kind of tedious but important work, just as we previously rewarded other private commercial software organizations. One thing I'd also I, I would add, Chris, is that at this point, it's no longer optional to do this. It's both necessary from a common sense uh, security risk management point of view, but it's also now mandatory because the U.S. federal government is mandating that U.S.-based organizations address this. And specifically, you know, just a couple of weeks ago in January, the Federal Trade Commission came out with a really, really strong statement, a really uh, strong directive where they talked about the Equifax breach that happened a couple of years ago, also, you know, through an unhandled issue in an open source project, the $700 million settlement that arose out of that. And they are really, really blunt about it. The FTC said, we, the FTC, intend to use our full legal authority to pursue companies that fail to take reasonable steps to protect consumer data from exposure as a result of Log4Shell or similar known vulnerabilities in the future. So it is just not optional. The you know federal regulators are saying, we are looking to enforce this. If you have a consumer data breach, we will hold you accountable for this, potentially to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So I just think people cannot bury their head in the sand anymore. This is becoming a corporate gover- governance issue, you know, for organizations of all sizes. We need to we need to contend with it. And fortunately, there are models that we can apply here from, you know, other contexts that will that will work in this moment as well. 
Yeah, I, personally, I couldn't agree with you more. I was actually going to use the bury a head in the sand analogy before you beat me to it. Um, you know, like not, a lot of things in cybersecurity aren't exactly easy, but the alternative is just like turning a blind eye to it when we know that it's a major problem that can compromise your organization, your customer trust, have re- regulatory consequences. So like turning a blind eye or burying your head in the sand is just not a a worthwhile strategy, in my opinion. And one question I want to ask before we do let you go is, you know, uh, what are some things that Tidelift is focused on, you know, that you maybe have touched on, you want to expand on, or other things you maybe haven't even mentioned yet that you think will benefit the industry and the community when it comes to, you know, software supply chain? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're here and we're trying to help address these, uh, these challenges. And by working specifically by working with this network of independent open source maintainers that we've gathered to do this together. That's where our name comes from, Tidelift, uh, you know, the old saying, the rising tide lifts all boats. So we think we can solve this, again, just grounding it back to where we started in a combination of software, but also people. We at Tidelift have a commercial offering that plugs into your software development release process, helps you come up with that software bill of materials, but then also helps you make good sound judgments around the software that's flowing into your applications that ties all the way back to first party information that these open source maintainers have. And as we discussed, also provides an incentive for those maintainers to do the diligence and proactive steps to head off issues that might otherwise occur, especially around security posture. So, you know, if anybody's interested in having a, what we hope is an easy path uh, through some of these challenging questions, Come check out what Tidelift has on offer at Tidelift.com. And I think it's a fairly unique model in the in the market today, but there are other tools and solutions out there that, uh, that folks can look at as well. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you our question we ask every guest, um, and especially with your experience and where you're at looking at OSS and SBOM and trying to solve these really complex problems. What does cyber resiliency mean to you? To me, it means taking common sense approaches, keeping it simple and ensuring that we have a you know, solid foundation to continue to build this digital civilization that we've, uh, we've undertaken over the last you know, couple of, of decades. We have to make sure that the foundation is resilient if we're going to you know, be able to have faith in that. And we cannot take it for granted, especially the elements of that foundation that come from independent, uh, creatively minded folks out there on the internet. Yeah. Awesome. Great, great answer. Thank you. So thank you so much, Donald, for joining us today. Great conversation around all things OSS. So that'll take us out for this week. Thanks again. And we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for letting me join.